You're listening to Salon Frequency, a podcast for salon professionals that are revolutionizing the texture of salon culture. My name is Joss Renee, and as your host on this journey, my goal is to encourage your growth behind and beyond the chair in this ever-changing beauty industry. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Mr. Thando Kafele. You may know him as one of the winningest stylists of the Talia Wajid hair shows or the King of Locks. And dare I say, he is the keeper of the culture. His energy is remarkable, and I am excited for you to hear this powerful conversation. I want to begin the conversation by asking you, can you share about yourself and what called you to this industry? What called me to this industry? I didn't want to work for white people. I felt that God has given me some talent or some gift or something that could be self-sufficient without working or being a part of the establishment. And whatever that was, I wanted it to be a service to my community. And so what I believe that is, is that I teach people of color how to love, honor, and respect the hair that God gave them. That's powerful. Did you see that for yourself prior to entering in the industry or were you in it doing hair and then you felt the calling to, do I want to say, take it up a notch or just move high within your purpose? I used to get my hair coiled for style purpose. And the gentleman who twisted my hair at the time, I was fascinated by the way he coiled my hair. I tried to mimic it, and people in my neighborhood told me I was good. Um, And then it became word of mouth that people wanted me to coil their hair. Um, I wasn't interested in being a stylist. I wanted to be a rap artist, but that wasn't working out. And... I decided to go to cosmetology school. And after I filled out the application, this older woman told me, Caucasian, I had asked, why do you teach our people to put chemicals on the closest part of their body to their brain? And she told me, because you people, that's how she started, need to straighten your hair because what you have is called over curly hair and it should be straightened so you can have one of the better positions in life. And at that moment, I ripped up the application and I walked out. I knew about locks and chops in Manhattan and that's where I got my training from. Master pioneer, Mr. Adamola Mandela and master pioneer, Mr. Oren Saunders. And there, I learned the basics and the foundation and hair care 
from that institution. Do you remember what year that was? Like, what was the racial tension like in the air at that time? I'm not good with years, but I'm going to have to assume maybe 95, 1995. I feel cosmetology school is a racist institution where they have never been inclusive to black hair except by the possibility of altering it with chemicals. It has never served us culturally and it has never served black people from a health perspective. Our hair doesn't thrive from chemicals. And I believe that is the reason why black women have hair challenges or no hair today. It is never included natural hair in their curriculum. And black hair was never looked at as beautiful. It has always been that cosmetology and straight hair was the standard of beauty. And I never understood why black people would spend thousands of dollars to be in an institution that didn't acknowledge or respect them. I definitely hadn't seen that before. Um, the implicit uh, racism, as uh, Miss Diane Bailey so eloquently put it, and how you are reiterating the institution of cosmetology. Um, but from my experience, when I went to Aveda, the education we received about textured hair was from the Black educators, and it was like a bonus. It was not never the standard. So just being in the system and like, you know, learning, wanting, feeling like they need to tell you how to do your hair, right? So that you can get your license, so that you're able to legally practice it. Um, you, I would say you overlook, well, at least I overlooked the, um, I guess, validation that I was seeking from that European standard. And just hearing you like outright, just before you even got into the institution of cosmetology, like wanting to know why they felt validated in teaching it is powerful beyond measure. And I wish I had that language when I was there, before I went to cosmetology school, or just to even move through the system of cosmetology with that self-awareness. But since I graduated, um, there's been an appendage to the Milady Standards of Cosmetology for textured hair, authored by Miss Diane Bailey, so that I feel cosmetology is working to become more, I don't know if the word is integrated, uh, diverse, <laughs> It's better than it was, put it like that. Would you agree? Or do you feel like the industry of cosmetology is worse off these days than it's been? I disagree. And so now there is a petition going around that has already 30 to 40,000 signatures to include natural hair into cosmetology. I was asked to sign that petition, and my response was, hell no. Tell me more. 
why would you not want to integrate or infuse their cosmetology with culture? Because they're not going to infuse it with culture. They are going to just include a conversation around black hair to appease us. The Institution of Cosmetology School, I don't know how many hundreds of years it's been around, but it's never been inclusive to black people. And so why would you ask me to sign a petition that has never been inclusive to black people? You are giving, you are asking the institution of cosmetology school and white people to be included. You're asking them for permission to do our own damn hair. And I'm not against white people learning black hair. I'm against white people learning black hair without the conversation of culture. If I sign that petition, every cultural experience that I've ever had, I would feel like I spit in their faces. Me signing that petition is like me, it's like another level of gentrification. I don't need black hair to be inclusive to cosmetology. Cosmetology would never be inclusive for a black hair school. Why do we keep asking people permission to do our hair that grows out of our hair naturally, that foundation, that foundationally, I don't know if that's a word, <laughs> we've been doing our own hair on our grandmother's stoops and porches. It is another way to charge us money and regulate what we do to people. And so that's why I asked, as black people, what do we own? If we don't own the things that make us uniquely different, what do we own? Why would you give black hair to cosmetology school? And you know they're not going to respect it. When you speak of ownership, um, as it relates to hair and the culture of natural hair for Black people, would you would you acknowledge techniques like Senegalese twists as a example of ownership, being that that method of twisting is originated in Senegal? Is that what you're speaking to? Yes. I'm speaking to us who do natural hair to speak from a cultural perspective. Meaning, when you coil someone's hair and someone says, oh, that's so nice. It looks like Shirley Temple curls. What? Why would you make a reference to a Caucasian girl and her hair, and our hair. Why would you not say, it looks like Jocelyn curls? Because Caucasians 
never reference anything they do from a cultural or African perspective. So you can't come to Kafele to ask for a French role. You have to ask for an African role. You can't ask me for an appointment. You have to ask me for an African grooming. You can't ask me for a two-strand twist. You have to ask me for a Nubian twist. And what scares us as black people from speaking in a cultural perspective? Why do we keep saying, I don't have locks, I have dreads, I don't have dreads, I have locks. You have African locks. You can have locks, you can have dreads. You can have whatever you want. If you're from Jamaica, if you're from the Caribbean, and you want to speak to your hair as dreads, somebody says, yo, what's up, dread? I got it. If you want to speak locks, uh, my hair is not dreadful, I have locks. I got it. But how powerful would it be if you said African locks? And what scares us, what makes us uncomfortable from speaking from a cultural perspective. Do you have the answer or like, have you thought about why it's so hard for professionals or just people in the, in the community amongst the African diaspora, why it's hard to speak from a cultural perspective? Which one do you want me to answer first, the public or the professional? The professional. I'll go with, let's go with the professional. Because once you receive your cosmetology license, it's a form of privilege. And once you receive that privilege, there's a status that it gives you. It gives you an elite kind of feeling that has nothing to do with culture. Um, you're a part of the establishment. And so that's, the first, that's your first experience. It's like your first kiss your first relationship, that's, that's what you know. So anything else is foreign and possibly uncomfortable. And so, speaking from the public, Sister Soldier had a quote that says, black people, too scared to call themselves African, and too dumb to know the difference, even if they did. And so I never participated in that institution. So I know nothing about it. And so back, oh my God, um, in being one of the first locticians to work the Brana Brothers show, the IBS show, the premiere show, um, the Talia Wajid show, all I did, or all I've ever done, was locks. And I would have people laugh at me and say, that's all you do? You just do locks? Oh, I, I do everything. Okay, what is everything? I just do locks. Well, I don't know why you would limit yourself. And I would say, what else is there to do? Locking people's hair and coaching them to lock their hair is the process and the beginning of starting healthy hair. After you've damaged your hair to no end, 
from that institution, you have to come back to the healers of the industry, who are the barbers, who are the braiders, who are the natural weave artists, and who are the locticians. We are the ones who bring back Black people's hair back to health. With all that being said, you're, you have a strong foundation of who you are in the industry, who you service, what the services are, and um, how you impact the community. With all of that being said, what do you feel is missing from our industry that was present when you entered the industry? Ooh, I'm having a powerful conversation with you. And um, I'm being very um, vulnerable with you. As a present, I don't feel I'm a part of the industry anymore. Because the industry, as a institution, doesn't acknowledge culture. And so I feel like I'm a part of the natural hair cultural industry or the natural hair cultural conversations. There's just too many conversations or spaces that don't acknowledge culture. Everybody in the industry on Instagram, every day, every single day, style, 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 style. Every day, nobody's having a conversation around health. Nobody's having a conversation around hair care. And the styles, they don't have a reference. You don't understand that this particular braid style that you just did, only queens in Nigeria can wear this hairstyle. Mm. You don't have a reference that this brother's locks that you just styled, that only young men who are entering manhood can wear this particular style. Have we lost the cultural aspect of adornment? We're styling locks, but we're not using cowrie shells. We're not using glitter. We're not using beads. We're not using string. And so, and I, and there's some amazing, amazing young people today um, who are taking lock styling to another level. But the cultural aspect is not available unless you go to a shop in Florida like Mandisa Ngozi. Um, unless you're serviced by Isis Brantley. Unless you are serviced by Isaiah in Atlanta, there are still people who hold the keys to the culture and who speak and 
work from a cultural perspective. So that's all I know. I don't know anything else. As you speak about culture, the first question that came to my mind was, okay, so what books, what what should I go to for reference? Like, how do I find out about the culture of hair? And then you said something profound. Speak to the generation that came before you. And I'm just like, duh. How is that topic of conversation broached? So you do what you're doing now. You be in a space of being fearless. You just have to have the conversation. I had a very popular millennial say to me, I've asked quite a few to reach out to a couple of the natural hair pioneers to be mentored by. They never responded. And I said, you can't make that request through a DM. It's like asking Jay-Z, can you teach me how to rap? If you want to know how to rap and be taught or mentored by Jay-Z, you have to ask for his manager. You have to ask for his agent. And you have to ask for his email address. And most importantly, you have to ask how much it costs. Just because I'm seeing veteran or whatever I'm called in this industry, I get to choose who I want to mentor. If I think you're a hustler and you don't give a damn about culture, I'm not sharing nothing with you. Yes, there's an African proverb that information not shared has no value. But I get to choose and I get to have discernment of who I want to pass the baton to and who I want to share this information with and who I trust will do the culture right, who will do the Spike Lee, who will do the right thing. And my information and my time is value. Do you feel like Black men have been excluded from natural hair, natural hair industry and conversations? I don't think we're acknowledged. I don't think we're thought about. Um, I think men run the world. I think men run everything. Men run sports. Men run health. Men run government. Men run everything. In the world, men run everything except natural hair. So it's a little uncomfortable in 1997 when a very fair-skinned black conscious brother with blonde locks comes into the industry and is pretending to have a voice. And it's very clear who he is as a, as a pilot and as a self-esteem specialist and as an industry leader. I never came into the industry to be liked. I came into the industry to make a difference. I never got on social media for followers. I came on social media to leaders. With that being said, what is one thing, if you could, if there could be one thing that you could choose, 
one thing that you would challenge every salon professional, so whether they have a license or not, every salon professional, what is one thing you would challenge them to do in the next 90 days? I want the industry to think about who they are as a natural hairstylist and what they're committed to and do they feel a need to shift their behavior. I made a mistake and I uh, hit my phone and it rang my client's phone. And when her phone rang on the screen, it said hairdresser. I said, who's that? She laughed. I said, okay, wait, that's you. I said, no, 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 no. I'm your African groomer. I'm your lock I'm your self-esteem specialist. I'm not your hairdresser. She said, I got it. I want the industry to think about calling themselves natural hairstylists and not using natural products on their clients. There's nothing natural with the beauty supply. I want natural stylists to shift their behavior. I want them to shift their thinking. I want them to shift their speaking. I want them to shift their language. I want them to have conversations with the generation before them. I want our conversations like the one we're having right now to start bridging the industry, the conversations, the culture. I knew when I came into this game, I knew I was different. Every day, Instagram, I see so many damn hairstyles, I got a headache. I got a headache. Style, style, style. Every day. How many styles can how many styles can you post? Why would you show your clientele or your competition or your industry your whole portfolio? Save something. <laughs> Save something. You showed your whole style game in a month. How many <laughs> Nubian twists, two strand twists, double strand twists can you do? Leave the creativity. Nobody does anything else. I'm just a different kind of stylist, Jocelyn. I'm, I'm, I'm a different kind of artist. We don't really know, a lot of us, how to be serviced. And we don't know the distinction of when the service becomes a disservice. And so, like I said with Miss Bailey, I didn't know I was a professional until I did my first 5,000 heads. Because you have to have different interactions. And you have to know how to talk to people. And you know how you have to be a therapist and deal with people's self-esteem and their conversation and their language and their hurt. 
And those 5,000, after you do the first 5,000, is it really 25,000? Because them 5,000 go out into the world and they share your name and your energy and then your name becomes household. And so I got to learn how to deal with different situations. If I got a young brother who's coming to me and is like, yo, Kafele, yo, what's up? I'm trying to see you. I'm trying to get my shit done. Uh, your, your shit done? Oh, my, my bad, brother Kafele. I need to, I need to get my locks done. That's the language we gotta, we gotta correct. We can't allow clients to get to speak bad about their hair. Unacceptable. Hashtag experience matters. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you learned anything from this episode or were inspired by anything that was shared today, please consider posting a five-star rating of this episode and then heading over to Apple Podcasts to write a review. That'll help other salon professionals and industry leaders discover and take part in these powerful conversations. And don't forget to check out the show notes for links about things that were mentioned in the interview. And also make sure you head over to salonfrequency.com so that you can join the vibe.